Welcome to Fitness Disrupted. Yes, 2.0, new feed, uh, same great show. And as I've said probably a hundred times, uh, I love what I do. Uh, and part of the reason I love what I do is because I get to read the best books and interview the best people and then bring them to you, and that includes today. Let me read the bio of the person I'm going to interview next, and I've been talking about his book, uh, so those of you who have been listening to the most recent podcast, you've heard me talk about it already, uh, Steve Magness. He is a world-renowned expert on performance. He's the author of the new book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and the surprising science of real toughness. He is the co-author of Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and the author of The Science of Running. Collectively, his books have sold more than half a million copy, uh, copies in print, ebook, and audio formats. That's hard to do, people, especially today. Magnes has served as an executive coach to individuals in a variety of sectors. His work serves on applying the principles of which he writes. In addition, he served as consultant on mental skills development for professional sports teams. His writing has appeared in Outside, Runner's World, Forbes, Sports Illustrated, Men's Health, and a variety of other outlets. In addition, Steve's expertise on elite sport and performance has been featured in The New Yorker, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Guardian, Business Insider, and ESPN, The Magazine. He currently lives in Houston, Texas with his wife, Hillary. Uh, once upon a time, he ran a mile, this is ridiculous, <laughs> in 401 in high school, at the time, the sixth fastest high school mile in U.S. history. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time. It's never easy, but we pulled it off. How are you? <laughs> All right. No, I'm doing great. Thanks so much, Tom. I'm really excited to talk to you. I, I could not. I, I seriously have been talking up your book nonstop. Um, I love what I do. And your book is just it's so much to talk about. And and let me just start by saying, Steve, like it wasn't what I expected from the title itself. I don't know if you've heard that yet. Um, and I was more than pleasantly surprised. So I thought it was going to be more like the comfort crisis, you know, Michael Easter's book, more about yeah being tough right and you kind of take the opposite uh approach and, and talk about how we got the toughness thing this toughness story wrong right kind of explain that kind of overarching theme to the book yeah it you know i it, it kind of warms my heart to say that because as you know in the writing industry like the title you go back and forth on a thousand times and it drove me right. nuts but but w i'm glad we settled on this because what happens is the book kind of gives you that that Michael Easter comfort crisis vibe, and then you get into it. And I think it was Rich Roll who told me this, the podcaster, he said, it's almost like a Trojan horse. You go in expecting this, and then all of a sudden you get this thing packed with how we got toughness wrong, and then this kind of almost like Eastern approach to how to actually be tough. Right. And and I and that's what it's about to me. And 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 to kind of set the stage is what I saw and the reason this book kind of resonated or why I, I decided to write it is pretty simple is I looked around and I looked at athletes. I looked in the business world. I looked up, you know, just people in general. I'm like, we're missing something. Like everybody talks about toughness, grit, resilience, all this great stuff, which is awesome. It's needed. But we talk about it in a way that I think misses some of the central points. And we almost like character characterize like this idea of toughness is like, you know, gritting our teeth, putting our head down and just pushing and bulldozing through everything. And that can work occasionally, but that's like me giving everybody a hammer and saying like, this hammer will fix all of your problems, like use it to get through anything. 
And as we all know, like we need more tools in our toolbox. So I really saw this as like, hey, how do I get people to expand their toolbox so that like they can actually take on challenges and actually get through like the the harrowing times in their life? And and the Trojan horse part uh, is so true because, you know, I, listen, I have a background in sports psychology, too, and this is what I love and why I'm so excited to talk to you about it. But I also felt really bad about I have two boys, Steve, who play some pretty high level sports hockey specifically, and they've had the worst coaches over the years like that have been really successful right at, at the younger age but like that's the open of your book and it's and it's scattered throughout because it's inherently connected to this toughness and success and you know i think the short answer is yeah in the short term but what's the price in the long term right so so that's where i really was kind of hit sideways was just your incredible breakdown of of coaching strategies and and how it applies to what we're talking about yeah, exactly. You know, and you know, the, the, the gist of this came is I started my career as a high school coach. So I got to see, you know, well, what were athletes doing and what were other coaches doing? And then I went into college coaching after that for a while. So I got to see it on the front line, but really kind of the impetus of, of, you know, that section of the book came is my wife is an elementary school teacher. And every once in a while, she she kind of drags me to some of her students' events because she's like, oh, I've got to, you know, she she tries to be fair to everyone. I got to go to like Susie's soccer game or basketball game or whatever. And I'm like, sure, I'll show up. <laughs> and I, re I, I remember going to like this 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 flag football game of like eight or nine year olds, like young kids. And just like expecting like, oh, these kids are going to run around like they're eight years old. Like, who cares? And instead, what I got was like this watching on the sidelines, these coaches, like even parents, like it was like if it was the Super Bowl, man. Right. It was like, you know, the end of the world. And here I'm sitting there being like, whoa, this is more intense than like some of the the athletes I'm working with who are like trying to make the Olympics or what have you. And that kind of pushed me down this path of, well, well, what is the end result here? And the end result is this, is that if we take that kind of authoritarian, like yelling, screaming, I'm going to control you by power and fear, what happens is it instills that the way to be motivated or the only reason I'm motivated as an athlete is because like some coach is looming over me, screaming at me to do this. And if I don't, I'm going to get punished or have to run laps, or do whatever. And what happens is it literally shifts our motivation towards external. And what we know, as you know, through decades of research is that if you want to make it over the long haul, you better have some sort of like internal driver in there, like getting you through the tough stuff. Because if it's only the, the accolades, the achievements, what have you, like that'll get you a little bit of the way. But that's going to fade when push comes to shove, when like reality smacks us in the face and when we're in the thick of things. And, and I want to back you up a little bit because uh... – you coached, right? And, and you still coach probably a little bit. Uh, yep. Would be my guess. Yeah. In that regard. But um, you were a runner. Like you check every box, right? This is why your book, I would argue, is so darn good is you check every box. So you were a 401 marathoner. So like the athlete, you studied it, you've coached it, you've done everything <laughs> that needs to be done to have the incredible. And you're an amazing writer, by the way, such a great book. Um, so that's rare. And that's why I would argue that your book is so good. 
um, is you have all of those experiences that are necessary to write a book like you did. And it's so few that have that. I mean, it's like Liam Neeson. <laughs> you know, you have a very unique uh, set of skills. <laughs> Let me just play off that because one of my sons, Steve, playing lacrosse, maybe eight, nine years old, not an important game. Open net. And this is like we're traveling again, like a couple hours. Why to go to play this game and open net. And he goes for a shot behind the head misses the net completely i love this story and all the parents scream like dad's like who like whose son is that why are you kidding me open and i'm like yeah this is how you get good right you yeah. you, you make mistakes so talk about that it plays into what you're just talking about it, exactly so this is a perfect example because in that moment that your son if he gets yelled at by the parents and what have you what happens there is we ingrain we're ingraining motivational habits and patterns. So if I if I miss that shot and all of a sudden I learn like very quickly, oh man, all the parents, coaches, whatever, they're super disappointed in me. What I'm ingraining is like this fear of don't screw up, right? Don't mess up because messing up means that like I get yelled at, I look down at, I lose my status as a player. You know, I'm embarrassed, all that good stuff. But what we know, again, from decades of research and just from the experience of top-level athletes and people is that you need to mess up because it's the only way that we learn and grow. We don't learn and grow when everything goes perfectly. There's this wonderful research that came out a couple of years ago that the, the headline was essentially this, talent needs trauma. And not trauma in the sense of like, you know, abuse or what have you. But what they meant was talent needs to struggle is that they found that the best athletes, the ones who made it to, you know, the premier league and the soccer, what have you, is they had some experience of difficulty or challenge that they really had to wrestle with and get through. And if we don't have that experience, what happens is we don't form those tools or those skills that are necessary to succeed in those moments. So in that that moment, you might think like, oh, eight or nine, like whatever, it gets yelled at, get over it. But but the deal is this, is if we teach them to fear failure, then all of a sudden they're not taking risks. All of a sudden they're not expanding their capabilities. They're not seeing what they're capable of. They're not seeing how good they should be. They're literally told or taught to be in kind of this preventive, protective state, and they're not going to grow from it. And growth is what we want for our children, whether it be athletically or academically. And that's why I think I know this book is is great for everyone, parents especially, regardless, as you just said, whether uh, you know you're an athlete or not. And this is a concept that I struggled with when I was first starting my uh, sports psychology studies. Steve was competing not to lose rather than to win, right? And that's it's a. I, I remember again, I used to run with this woman in New York, amazing runner like phenomenal marathon runner, not at your level, but like, you know, she would constantly just over three hours, you know, clockwork, New York city marathon, whatever. And I once caught her on the 59th street bridge. Uh, and I tapped her on the shoulder and she spun around and screamed at me. <laughs> I was like, wow, what frame of mind is she in? And I think that she was one of those people who competed not to lose rather than to win. And that's sad. Right. And, and it doesn't foster, um, creativity and everything you're talking about. It, exactly. I mean, that's where that mindset is, is like too often we, we have this like fear of failure competing not to win. And 
you know, often often hear people throw out maybe Michael Jordan or what have you, but that dude wanted to win. Another thing I like <laughs> to say about this is that like there are very few people who are Michael Jordan who can carry a chip on their shoulder around like that and not go crazy. Right. 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 And, and, and I think that's what we're getting at. And it's very the other example I like to use. And if you watch, you know, American football, everybody knows this is like, what do you what do you think is going to have what happens when a team goes to prevent defense all the time? You know, John Madden, John Madden had this great quote. He said, prevent defenses, prevent teams from winning. <laughs> Right, because because what happens is you get into this. Oh, I gotta protect. I gotta protect. I gotta not lose. That's what I'm trying. And you take your foot off the gas and you stop doing the things that allow you to succeed. So what I'm talking about is from the youngest to the oldest is like we want to instill that. Hey, how do we how do we create an environment that allows people to be secure enough to take some risks, so to, to sometimes fail but to bounce back and learn from grow and grow from that. And if we can create that environment, good things are going to happen. And and I got depressed, Steve, because I'm thinking like, can we get there? You know, I I interviewed Michael Boyle, you know, the preeminent Boston strength and conditioning guy. I'm sure you know of him. And we talked about how, again, back to hockey, when they're kids, what what do the uh, parents yell? Even coaches, you know, dump the puck in. So you dump the puck in and then what do they yell? Get the puck out. There's no hand stick handling. There's no, you know, learning of uh, just basic skills. It's all about to win. Speaking of which, like, what do you think of, you know, the Norway approach where the kids aren't allowed to compete till they're like 13 years old, right? They don't keep score and they are killing it right at the Olympics as a result. Yeah. You know, this is one of the most interesting and fascinating things is I, you know, if you say this, and I've said this in a couple, you know, other areas, if you say, oh, we need to take the Norwegian approach and don't keep score, like people will will be like, <laughs> what are you what are you not about competing? Are right. you not about like you not compete? Like, are you just that's just the loser's approach. Right. And I think and you zoom out and you look at, well, Norway's winning a lot on the Olympic level. Right. And, and I think what what we're getting at is this is if you look at the best athletes, and there's actually some research on this, they're experts at flipping the switch, which means they know when to compete, okay? They know at the right time to compete. So in the marathon, they're not going crazy competing as if it's life or death in the first 100 meters because they know they've got 26 miles and they've got to compete at the right time when it's the toughest part, right? And I think that applies holistically as well as I think what the Norway approach does is it says, you know what? We're in a competitive environment that, you know, they're going to learn how to compete when it's the right time. And for them, it's saying once you get 14, 15 in our language, like you get to the high school level when sports gets a little more serious, you're going to have enough opportunities to learn how to compete. What they value is they're saying like, hey, when you're eight, nine years old, it's not about learning to compete. It's learning to instill the basics that you just talked about, the basic skills that matter. It's learning to instill the motivation that gets us through the long stuff. Because if you compare the Norwegian versus American model, you look at quitting rates for American once we get to that that 12, 13-year-old, they're off the charts. Like the number of kids who'd quit youth sports once they get into teenagers, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they're off the freaking charts, especially in girls sports, surprisingly. So what does that, what does that tell me is that 
to me, even if all we cared about was winning at the professional or Olympic level, well, we are losing a ton of talent before, before they've even reached puberty, which we know like the, someone who maybe not, maybe not that great as 12 year old can skyrocket in performance just because they're a late bloomer because like they needed to hit puberty before they had maybe the strength to utilize their skills. Right. Right. So to, so to me, it's just like we're just doing stuff so backwards where it's like, no, the whole goal, if we care about, even if all we cared about was professional sport and winning, the whole goal is keep people in sport long enough so that we can see who is good. Because if we limit the talent pool, that's like, you know, the, the, the comparison I'd give is like saying, hey, you know, at 12 years old, we're going to decide who the future scientists are the future <laughs> like you know guy to run apple or microsoft is no you'd be like that's idiotic because we have no idea how people are going to develop yet in sport that's often what we do because our our system is so kind of messed up that's so true and, and if you just watch kids on a playground you know i love this example like you know they split up into teams if the team is lopsided they trade players, right? They want it to be fun and competitive. They don't want to win 30 to nothing. You know, I'll, I'll never forget, Steve, the first time, yeah, this is crazy, but my young son went to t- Toronto to play hockey and we got killed. And the parents on our team were, were, you know, catatonic. And I said, what do you think we come to Toronto for? Do you want to come here to win 30 to nothing? Or do you want to play against some of the best of the best? And they wanted to win 30 to nothing, the vast majority of them. It's so crazy. Um, and, and, uh, I just I, I don't know how we turn it around, Steve. I mean, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really it, hard. It, people have to read your it book. <laughs> that's and how that, we that's, turn it around. You know that that's what I'm hoping. But it is, and you know, this isn't. You know, I I remember um, reading something that Tom House put out. So Tom House, famous uh, coach of base baseball, had coached Nolan Ryan and Tom Brady and football players and all this stuff. And he had this very astute observation when um, I, I talked to him briefly on online. And he said, you know, one of the reasons like people play video games more than like go outside and like play sports. I'm like, I have no idea. I said, this is just my hypothesis. But he says, because they can play video games without mom or dad or some adult like yelling at them that they need to do X, Y and Z and critiquing them and whatever have you. Video games provides this platform where it's just them being a kid playing it the way they want to and i think i think that's brilliant because think about you know even you know a couple decades of ago when i grew up is what happened how did we develop athletes well yeah we had organized sport and stuff but you generally got in into sport because you went out onto the playground you went on onto the baseball or the local soccer field and you got the kids from the neighborhood and you started playing together without any adults around and what what happened? You did exactly what you just said. <laughs> right. If it, it right, if it was unfair, you you traded teams to make it competitive because all you were doing was playing. Like, and you were sometimes losing, sometimes winning. But it and once the game ended, like it was the end of the game, and you just went home. Now it's like you go to those organized things, even at young ages. It's life or death if you don't win, and it's just it's just bizarre. And what happens is the kids are like this kind of sucks <laughs> right? and, and we lose talent again. So I think a lot of it comes down to is like, we need to fundamentally change like how we're thinking about sport, especially at the youth level. 
And the other thing is, like, as parents, like, if you find yourself like going nuts on your your child at you know the 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 soccer game or football game or whatever have you, it's like that should be an indicator. You need a you need like a, a mental timeout. Like, are you? projecting onto your child like your failed you know sporting career or what have you and often that's the case so it's like hey let's get some perspective what actually matters do we want to develop this year so he's the greatest 13 year old in the world or do we want to have the long-term view of how do we instill not only performance but also like a, a place where they hopefully enjoy sport over the long haul which means even if they don't make it in college or professional or what have you, they become the 30 year old, the 40 year old who like plays soccer for exercise or goes out and signs up for a triathlon or a marathon or a 10 K or whatever have you, because they had a good experience with sport and physical activity. I'll give you a great story. Uh, one of my brother, I have five brothers, crazy family. And, uh, and I'm going to bring this brother back to close it out. Cause <laughs> he saw me reading your book and had the perfect line for me to finish this. But he literally had a son, Steve, who was coached by Marty St. Louis before Marty St. Louis mm. just went back to the NHL. They were wow. winning. Yeah. Incredible. Like what are you kidding me? What an incredible experience. They were at a young age. They were, you know, winning most of the games. So Marty switched all the positions, defense to forwards, forward parents went berserk including my brother who admitted he went into marty st louis office and said you know i know it's not my place but and then started you gotta be kidding me like this is the insanity about the winning and not understanding the fun and and uh you know just improvement um and let me take this a step further. let's take this to adults now um you know let's talk about mediation and pain you know people think one of the big themes in your book is you don't just grin and bear it you actually accept it and and just talk about the mediation and pain uh theory that you uh describe in the book yeah exactly you know um i love that story by the way <laughs> you can't that make it, that up. hits me <laughs> yeah. you can't make it up no. it just cracks me up but it shows the absurdity um so mediation pain so often when we think of pain what happens is, is we're kind of instilled with this like you know, just grin and bear it, push through it, all this stuff. But what the research shows in across psychology, whether we're looking at athletic pain or like just pain in general, is that that it's when we resist something, when we try and resist it by grinning and bearing, it comes back like tenfold, right? And the pathway to get through that isn't to grin and bear it, it's to accept that pain is a signal that is saying, hey, we're we're out of our comfort zone a little bit. And it's to have almost this kind of like Buddhist non-reactive state to it, which is accept it, have a conversation with it, decide what you want to do with it, reframe it, reappraise it, and just kind of like understand that that it is what it is. And what research shows is that the way I like to think of it in the latest psychology shows is that that pain is almost like an alarm in your head. And if you keep trying to resist it, if you keep trying to fight it, your brain learns, oh, this is something we should avoid it, avoid. So turn that sensitivity to that alarm up. If instead you say, hey, I'm going to embrace this. Hey, I'm just going to try and accept this. What happens is that alarm in our brain goes, oh, okay, I guess this isn't something I should entirely fear. So I'm going to turn this alarm down a little bit and I'm going to turn this alarm down a bit, a little bit. And we know we've all had this experience, the experience that, you know, the example I like to give is, you know, 
think back to the first time when you were so out of shape and you decided, hey, I'm going to start a fitness program. I'm going to go running. And you go run. And that alarm in your head is like from the first step. It's like through the roof. You're like, what are you doing? Like, get back on the couch. Like, stop. (laughs) Like, you're going to get hurt. But what happens over time is you just say, hey, this is kind of normal. Like, I'm going to get used to it. That alarm goes down and down and down and down. And eventually you're like, oh, this is kind of, you know, running is running. Like that alarm then only goes off when it's appropriate, when maybe you're in a race or like really pushing something. And that's what we're trying to do by just kind of learning to sit with your your thoughts and feelings and sensations is like turn that alarm signal down. Which is the perfect segue to back to the same brother who I love being able to throw under the bus on podcast. I won't name him, Steve, but he knows who he is, and as do my other brothers and anyone who listens to this who knows him. Um, I'm on the beach. I'm reading your book, loving it. And he walks by and he looks at the cover. And he says, do hard things. He goes, why would I do that? And he's, he wasn't kidding, right? So why would I do hard things? You just gave a great you know, uh, description of why, but if, if you had to give like the pitch to people, why we do hard things? And you just, you know, I'll leave it to you. What's the quick yeah. explanation? I know it, you know it, but how do you get someone like my brother? And can you get someone like my brother at 40 something to do hard things? So I think that whole alarm thing is, is pertinent here, but I'm gonna go in a totally different direction right. to answer this, okay? So there was a research study that actually came out after the book came out, but it encapsulates it perfectly. They took a group of people and had them to do had them do one of the hardest things that I think is imaginable right now in the U.S., which is take people who were hardcore Republicans and hardcore Democrats and get them to talk to each other. And what they did is they said, hey, we're going to tell half the group to, hey, just try and talk with the other side, like maybe find some common ground, like, you know, all this stuff. The other half, they said, this conversation is going to suck. You need to embrace the discomfort. But in that discomfort of this conversation, you're going to be able to learn and grow. What happened when they looked at those two different groups, they found that the group who embraced the discomfort, who they had, they primed with that attitude and then had a conversation with someone from the opposing political party, they found those two opposing opponents, they had a more productive conversation. They got along better. They didn't agree on anything, but they saw the other person as a human being instead of this kind of character terror that we look at. Right. And and to me, like that's what doing hard things does is it gets rid of the facade. When we embrace that discomfort, it pulls away the 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 facade that we all wear and it forces us to face reality and see either human beings as human beings or see ourselves in terms of our strengths and also our weaknesses and the things that we need to grow upon. If we never do hard things, we live in this kind of false reality where it might feel like everything's happy and joyous and comfortable, but what happens is we're it's just a facade. It's like living on Instagram. It's not real. Right. And what doing hard things is, is it breaks down that Instagramification of life and it says, hey, life is sometimes hard. Sometimes you're going to experience challenges. And when you you embrace that discomfort, guess what? You're going to be better prepared 
when you inevitably face that thing that that kind of smacks you in the in the face and pulls down that facade and you just got to figure it out so perfect oh my gosh thank you so much and i want to read which i love from page 112 so i did the rim to rim to rim at the beginning of um covid you know cross grand canyon and back with crazy ultra friend it nearly killed me steve second time we went back and i'm like why are we going back and we don't run together we go there together we run separately so it's basically solo about you know when i was going to getting ready to climb the last climb up to the rim and then go back it's 100 degrees this time i said you know what i've done this before enough like i think i, I gotta cut this short and i did and it was the greatest decision I made. I probably would have died definitely if I hadn't. But I just wonder, sometimes there's a time to quit. And quit is a strong word, but yeah. And you have such a great uh, uh, page 112 kind of description of this. And I just want to read it real quickly. Toughness isn't just about persistence in the face of discomfort. It's about making a good decision. Sometimes the tough decision is to turn around, walk away, and quit. Toughness is navigating the inner turmoil in order to make a good decision. Sometimes that's to persist. Other times it's to quit. Choice allows us to take back control to be able to make that decision. It's a kind of superpower that brings back confidence, helps us wrestle with our emotions, and allows us to learn, adapt, and grow. I, I learned, adapted, and, and grew from your book, Steve. Cannot thank you enough. Um, uh, I can't wait for your next book. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Thanks so much. As always, this was a this was a wonderful conversation. I, I enjoy everything you're putting out into the world. It's, it's great stuff. And as listeners can hopefully uh, tell in this conversation, man, we're we're so aligned. So keep, <laughs> right. keep bringing good stuff into the world yourself. And let's do this again. Thanks again, Steve. Have a great day. Speak soon. All right. And that was the incredible Steve Magness. If you read one book this year, it's Do Hard Things, Why We Get resist, uh, Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science on Real Toughness. Cannot, cannot recommend it more highly. Again, I'm Tom Holland. I'm going to cut this short. Tom H. Fit Instagram, Tom uh, H. Fit Twitter. Thank you for listening. The best of the best. Do hard things. Read this book and believe in yourself. <laughs>